This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. For this episode of the Craft Beer and Ring Podcast, I am in Ferndale, Michigan, uh, and we're gonna we're here at Shram's Mead in Ferndale. It's, uh, joining me for the podcast are Ken Shram and James Nager. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Pleasure and a privilege. It's good to be here. This is one that we started having this conversation last fall. James wrote a, a story on honey quality. Actually, you just reached out and like, hey, I'd love to write for you guys. And like, we would love for you to write for us also. And we found, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> and after some long conversations where we found the right topic, you wrote a, a story on honey quality for, uh, for our pale ale and beyond beer issue. Um, that's out right now for craft beer brewing subscribers. And that led to this conversation, uh, or this idea that we should also do a podcast. It's, it's actually been something on my list for years and years and years now. And, uh, we're going to talk about making me today. This is only in the history of the podcast this is episode 289. This is the second episode we've ever done on mead making. Oh, wow. What only was the first one? It was Jeff Herbst of superstition, uh, superstition. Okay. Yeah. And that was a few years ago. So only the second, it's not a topic we talk about a lot. Um, but mead being kind of beer adjacent, you know, uh, you know, and using a lot of the same things, a lot of the same kind of uh, materials, whether it's fruit, uh, whether it's honey, that also that are also used by brewers. I think it's always interesting to get the opinions and approaches you know that you all take towards this that can also you know be cross applicable uh, and impact folks. We're going to talk about using fruit. We're going to talk about honey, honey quality. We're going to talk even about corks because that's something that you all are. Very, very passionate about, or at least James is. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I, I'm there too. I'm yeah. there too. Yeah, uh, we're going to get a little bit nerdy about the, the the high end of quality and some of those differentiating factors and some of the hard ways and uh, uh, kind of disciplined uh, approaches that you take to try you know, to make meat at this high, high, high quality. Before we do that, GD Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. They're proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past thirty years, and GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with twenty four seven service and support. Want to max Maximize efficiency in your chiller. GD's micro channel condensers are designed for less power draw. They have a lighter weight and a more compact design, using up to 70% less refrigerant, and that means a lower GWP and lower operating costs. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call them to discuss your next project. This episode's also sponsored by BSG exclusive distributors of RAR Malting Company, producers of quality malt since 1847. Navigating the seas of brewing can be a treacherous affair, so let RAR North Star Pills be your guide. With overtones of honey and sweetbread, flavor and aroma notes of hay and a nutty character, RAR North Star Pills is a base malt you can set your compass by great for any beer style but perfect for a classic lager set a course for bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn how ken why don't you give us the story of shram's mead uh, you know it's something i mean you occupy this space in mead making in america that you know that's that's pretty pivotal you know you wrote basically what is the standard book on the subject here, the complete mead maker. Uh, anyone who is a fan of mead is familiar with Shrams, um, you know, but, but uh, you know, in a nutshell, give us the, give us that history. What, what took you down this road? Even early on in the seventies, when I was a high school student, I, I learned that 
there was a spectrum of quality in beer. Sure. Um, I, I, I figured out pretty early on that I didn't really like uh, American-style pilsners. And, and I, I, uh, I talked to my dad, who had been to Germany as a kid, and said, hey, well, you know, what's a, what's, a, what's a good beer? What's an actual good beer? And he said, uh, you know, when I was over there, I loved, I loved uh, Dortmunder Union, and I really liked Lowenbrau from Munich. And so I, 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 you know, was a kid, <laughs> I, wa- I walked into the, I walked into my favorite beer store and with my heart, you know, pumping a mile a minute, I put a six pack of each on the counter and, um, they let me buy them. And, you know, um, it, it changed, it changed my outlook. Um, I, I began to understand what quality in beer was like, um, in, in the 1980s, my brother bought me a, a homebrewing kit for a Christmas present. And in there was the complete joy of homebrewing by Charlie. Yep. And and yeah, just I'm, I mean, if if you look at the number of people in the brewing community that started brewing by using the complete joy of homebrewing, I'm sure it's 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 the vast majority of of uh, people who have you know significant spots in the commercial world today. Sure. Um, maybe not Grossman and and Larry and some others, but but um, a, a lot of the people that are pretty prominent. You don't get to millions of copies sold without uh, impacting a bunch of people it, it, along the way. His impact was huge. His impact was huge. And then in the back of the book, there's the there's the appendix on how to make mead, and and I I took a liking to it. Um, I'm I'm a you know sort of a I don't want to say an artisty guy, but I was in video production and a musician, and I liked I liked creative outlets, and and it really clicked to me that mead was sort of this wide open field. Uh, there was no real American culture. There weren't commercial standards. All, what you had to do was to figure out um, kind of what in your mind's eye or what I've even referred to as your mind's tongue uh, you you want to come up with. And then you, you go out there and pursue it. Um, and so I, I, I started that. And that, that led me to start the Mazer Cup in 19... Actually, we... we Went ahead and registered with the with the AHA in '91 and held the first one in July of '92, and things kind of snowballed. Yeah. And now I knew more. I had I had more reference examples. I, I tasted some really incredible fruit meads uh, by Robert Kime. Robert Kime was the first place, you know, it was a, it was a best of show winner in the first ever Mazer Cup. He was he was a uh, a honey guy and a and a was was the scientist pretty much pioneering ultrafiltration for mead uh, b- back in the 90s. Yeah. Um, but but I got to taste some great stuff and and then uh, you know that led to that led to Zymergy asking us to do presentations at at the conferences which led to articles which led to more presentations which led to more articles <laughs> and and pretty soon Dan McConnell who was who was my co-conspirator at the time uh, we, we became known as the mead guys. And and that's how, uh, you know, when when uh, Dan's Dan's a career uh, research microbiologist at the University of Michigan. He's Doctor Dan McConnell, and he's he's probably the smartest guy I've ever known. So when it came time to write a book, um, he was working on grants with Harvard, and I was had time, <laughs> and so and so I wrote the book by myself, um, and that kind of that kind of got started and. From that point on, I, I I think I knew what I was doing. I was making meads that I liked myself, and and I was familiar with great beers. And become as I was writing the book, I made myself familiar with great wines. So, so I kind of knew that that I was at a standard that was potentially commercial in quality. Yeah. Um, 
and I got a lot of encouragement. Uh, there were a lot of people who said, you should start a meadery. And so I did. Eventually I did. I mean, I needed to get my kids through college first. Yeah. Um, and I was working in television production. I had a, you know, a career that I couldn't really just abandon quickly. I had, I had benefits for my family and all, all the things that you're supposed to have after you've been doing something in, in your actual field of endeavor for, for a career. So it was tough to, it was tough to, to make the leap. But at, at, at some point I finally decided, okay, if you're going to do this with your, whatever time you got left, it's, it's now it's time to go. <laughs> so in 2013, we opened our doors. And, and in fact, while we were in the process of getting open, that's, that was when I met James, he, 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 he looked me up and, and said, Hey, I, I hear there's something going on. Can I help? So your relationship predates James's relationship then because out you were without. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was, in you became a part of the family yeah. literally, uh, uh, later on. I like to start with this so that people know that there's no nepotism involved, but I reached out to this guy, um, prior to my relationship with <laughs> Allison. Um, now, Allison is your daughter. Allison Ken, is yeah. Ken's daughter. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of them. Um, I, I was just a molecular biology grad student. And I think like every other biology grad student in the world, I was fermenting things and uh, wanted to work at a brewery because, uh, you know, molecular bio biology is really exciting, but it's a lot of reading papers and, um, you know, your eyes start to bug out a little bit. So um, I was working at a couple of breweries just, to, you know, five, 10 hours a week um, while I was uh, a graduate teaching assistant as well. And um, I think I made one mead. Uh, prior to working at Trams Mead. Um, but I discovered Mead at Bee Nectar here in Ferndale. They were, I think, the one of the biggest meaderies in the world at the time, or in the U.S. at the time. But they were still relatively small compared to where they are today. But, um, you know, this mostly carbonated styles of mead, which are hydromels, it's lower ABV, more akin to some uh, craft beers or, or seltzers. And I thought, okay, this is pretty good. And then there was one that was like $10 for an ounce. And I was like, well, this is insane. Uh, what is this? Um, and I, I don't know. I just said, whatever, I'll try it. And I was like, whoa, this is really interesting. It was a Ken Tram series, Heart of Darkness from Bee Nectar. I think this must have been 2010. They were pouring 2009 in 2010, and there was another release in 2011. Um, and that night, I went home on my Kindle, and I got Ken's book, and I started reading it. And it's a pretty exciting book from a certain perspective. Unlike a lot of other, well, uh, there are some brewing books that are like this, but it starts with a lot of history. And I think like Charlie's book, is very flowery language about mead in terms of how awesome it is. And I was like, I, you know, I can kind of see that. I've, I've tried the bee nectar stuff. It was really, it was good. And then the, but the heart of darkness was like the, a step above. So I reached out to Ken and said, hey, I heard your, you know, I think I Googled him. And that's when I realized he lives like 10 miles away from me here in Metro Detroit. And I just sent him an email saying, hey, do you need any help at the meadery getting started? I'm working at such and such breweries. I'm in grad school. And um, he's like, no, I don't but I could really use your help picking cherries. And I said, Oh, okay. Well, 
that seems less exciting. But then I re- come to realize that the cherries that go into the heart of darkness that I just had. So I, I, very quickly, I was like, sure, let's do it. <laughs> so I met him in Troy, um, where at the time it was the only place that we had these um, cherries that Ken had the cherries. And um, I was just pitting, pitting Sharbakes the first day I ever met Ken. And it was pretty fun. And, you know, getting to taste almost immediately one of the best meats in the world, if not the best meat in the world, uh, was really kind of formative for me. And then, like I said, I think I had only had made one meat at home and it was, it was better than my first beer, but it was sort of middling. And, you know, from there, it was very, very quick. Um, I think for both of us into the, into the world of commercial mead making, which is slightly different than what you would do at home. But it was quite a transition. We had to really sit back and analyze and say, do we know what we're doing? Is, is this what other people are doing? What, what are other people doing that we're not doing? Because this seems wrong. You know, like working with a drum of honey for the first time. It was kind of like a, uh, we learned how to do it together in a lot of ways. And we came up with new pro- processes and different techniques on our own that we've subsequently shared with a lot of other folks in the industry, including Bean Nectar. And um, it's been really fun. Yeah. The the story that uh, James tells, it kind of takes me back to um, my, one of my mentors, one of my real serious mentors was, was Bill Pfeiffer. He was um, one of the first five national beer judges. That's how I got to meet him. I picked up my first copy of Zymer G magazine. And in there is an article about, well, here, here's the beer judge certification program. And here are our first five national judges, nationally ranked judges. And one of them is Bill Pfeiffer. He's from, he's from Wyandotte. He lives, he, he, you know, at the time, again, he lives 10 miles away from me. <laughs> and, and so I called up Bill Pfeiffer and said, Hey, hey well, will you, will you taste some of my meads and some of my beers? And he said, yeah, sure. Come on over. Which, which, I mean, that, that to me, uh, I, 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 at that point, I mean, I knew I had to pay it forward. By the time I met James, uh, Bill had already died, unfortunately, but, um, it, it was, it was really formative to me because if, if all of this is going to grow and prosper, we all have to, um, take people under our wings and show people things that we know and, and help each other. And so James said, Hey, can I come on over? And the answer, you know, it should have been and was, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I probably should have been no, but (laughs) Um, yeah, but it's, it's, it's part of, it's part of the process for the, for the entire industry. It's, it has been for a long time. Well, I love from personal, you know, uh, perspective that you came from a position of creating content to then creating a business, you know, based on this subject. And I think it's also interesting that the commercial side of Shram's Meadery, you know, James has been involved from those early days and uh, you kind of have gone along to this, um, you know, and you all have been figuring out a lot of things. This is not like there was a playbook, uh, you know, people getting into the brewing world now there's a lot of resources for them on how to become a professional brewer. Uh, it wasn't like that existed in the mead world. And then uh, the early, uh, around the you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, as you started forming the idea of actually creating a business around this. Sure. Sure. I mean, and there, there are a number of people who, 
who, myself as included, who have said that mead is kind of where craft beer was 20 or 25 years ago. And my book came out, I think, 21 years after the complete joy of home brewing. So uh, there's a certain logic to that. But there's also the, the reality that there was no commercial mead making community in the United States ever. Right. We're we are making this up absolutely as we go along. There are no precedents. And and the craft beer world, yeah, there there was there wasn't there was a period of time during Prohibition when there was no no brewing industry in the United States. But really there's been a brewing in the industry in the United States since there's been a United States. Um so the aspects of the commercial mead industry if you want to call it an industry, <laughs> um, are indeed out as we go. There's just so much that we are are uh, literally figuring out. There, there, yeah. there is no, there are no mead tanks. Uh, that you can use wine tanks or you can use brewing tanks. There, there were no mead milk tanks <laughs> or milk tanks. <laughs> yep, we're exactly. Laying, we're laying the track in front of us as we go. That's exactly correct. Uh, because, and I'll just say it. A lot of mead, a lot of commercially available mead is really bad. And a lot of the mead making practices that are out there is are really bad. And that's even before we get into the modern winemaking stuff that we were talking a little bit about earlier. Um, th- there is a mead industry, but everyone is doing their own thing. It's not, the mead industry hasn't coalesced around sort of any set of industry best practices like you might have with beer or in wine where you have the Seibel Institute. You've got UC Davis, the School of Winemaking. You've got Geisenheim uh, in Germany. Germans. All of these people are coming from uh, somewhat of a, a similar background of training, but there's no such thing for mead. And everybody is coming from mead from their uh, to mead from their own perspective, um, and most of them without any sort of credentials or training. And so it's good. There's a huge diversity of, of mead-making styles and, and mead-makers out there. But most of them are lacking in experience and credentials. Yeah. And that has really represented itself in the industry as a whole because it's like the Wild West. You know, there, there are very low capital requirements for a meadery compared to a brewery, for example. And, you know, you don't necessarily need access to a vineyard or a vineyard of your own to make mead you can buy honey you can buy fruit you can buy spices and you can make it in your basement um and so there's a lot of folks that come from home mead making to commercial mead making and they bring that same mentality and it just is difficult on them and on uh like on consumers as well you know like um one thing that comes to mind is this pumps versus pails issue that i am like i'm somewhat of and whatever industry will do air quotes here the mead industry is relatively a ragtag group of people, but I'm a huge safety nut. And one of the things in a meadery that you need if you like, if you love yourself is a honey pump because honey is heavy. It sucks to work with. It comes in these drums. If it's not liquid, you got to make it liquid. But even at a medium to large scale, you have brewers and mead makers using pails of honey. And you, you see these shots on Instagram where they've laid out their hundred pails of honey. And it just makes my elbows hurt. He's had elbow surgery. My elbows hurt. Like lifting pails of honey sucks, especially if you're going up and over sure, to a tank. Sure. Um, and all too some, often, if some it's OSHA an, issues there for sure. Well, uh, right. I mean, it's more than 40 pounds. 
it you know a yeah a five pound pail or a five gallon pail of honey is um a significant amount of uh, weight but you know um it it also is it ties into the quality aspect if you're getting honey in pails it's almost always going to be filtered you can get those little bee blankets for a pail um but most of the honey that you get in pails at least on a, at a certain scale if you're looking at 100 pails of honey those are filtered pails because it's going to be liquid if you filter it it'll stay liquid much longer so getting a pump allows you to get raw honey closer to the beekeeper and so you get a higher quality product but then you have to work with it somehow you are you jumped past my segue and uh, that's okay that's okay (laughs) because i think it is important and i think what we'll do through the through the course of this podcast is talk about some of those quality items to try to you know lay down some groundwork to talk about some of those key things that people should be paying attention to in quality all along the way from you know again from the way that you're using honey through you know the kind of way that you use fruit in the process obviously fruits a, a giant piece of this also impacts the entire fermentation process now from you because as much as you're making mead you're also making mead and fruit wines in that sense um and there's you know fermentation implications from both of those uh, elements in this uh and then down through the packaging because that is you know that that end process whether it's filtering filtering or fining is you know is, again something that uh, uh you all have very specific ideas around uh and then into the the uh, packaging to to allow for longevity in the package i want to we can talk about that entire framework for quality uh in this before we do that AccuBrew is a game-changing fermentation model monitoring system that gives you unprecedented insight into your yeast's health and activity. The AccuBrew sensor mounted through your tank's sample port creates a record of sugar conversion, clarity, and temperature for every batch run. Step into the modern era of brewing and get your hands on a system that helps deliver your best brew every batch. Like to improve? So does AccuBrew. Something big is coming Find out more at AccuBrew.io. Also at ProBrew, they believe that your brewery deserves equipment as unique as the drinks that you craft. That's why their solutions are specifically designed to help you brew your beer, not someone else's. From brewing to fermenting to carbonating and can filling, ProBrew's customizable equipment empowers breweries to expand their operations at their own pace. For more information, visit www.probrew.com or email Contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. Probrew, brew your beer. And is your brewery making its own ciders, seltzers, and other beverages beyond beer? If you need a central source for fruit flavor, Old Orchard has you covered. Old Orchard supplies flavored craft juice concentrate blends to beverage brands for the production of beer, cider, seltzer, wine, spirits, kombucha, and more. Flavor your lineup and streamline your sourcing by heading to oldorchard.com slash brewer. So let's keep that idea, that question of honey quality going. You mentioned the pail versus drum piece and the the pump versus pail is driven by, you know, refinement in the honey itself. Um, you know, talk to me about the difference in that. You know, what is, what is that difference then from your perspective using honey on a, on a very routine basis uh, what, that comes from filtered honey versus not filtered? And as you all are thinking about honey and honey quality, uh, you know, how do you, what are some of those kind of key points and those key metrics that you use, you know, to determine that quality? Again, there's not really 
a giant sense of a set of standards within this industry that you want to hit. You know, if we're looking at malt and the beer side, you can look at your COA, you can understand, you know, what's going on in this fermentable. You know, you have all the the data out there, you know, for every batch of malt that you might buy. Um, you know, you guys don't have that same kind of thing in honey. So how do you how do you start figuring that out? We 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 bought a lot of honey. <laughs> a lot of samples as we well. Bought, we bought a lot of honey. And I went to the National Honey Board and I got the names of producers and I called them up and I asked them if they were willing to sell us drum quantities of honey and if they were, if they were willing to send us samples. And we, we went through hundreds of samples. Hundreds. Hundreds of samples. Um, both, I mean... We went through we went through probably dozens of samples from different suppliers, and then when we hit the supplier that we're using right now, he said, "I I package um, many different lots every year, and the lots can be nine to twelve drums uh, on, from a given extraction day, you know, schedule, and I can let you I can let you sample the individual lots, and so we did." And he still maintains that standard of, of allowing us on an annual basis when we make our purchases from him to, to let us taste through different lots that he's got and, and pick the ones that we like the best. It's like hop selection for honey. It's, it, that's fantastic. It it's, it, yeah. And right now, because, I mean, the, everything that James said in the article, which you should read, um, <laughs> it is, is accurate. And, but, but what it kind of gets Two at the end in the in the end analysis is that uh, right now we're still left with a human sensory apparatus yeah. to to go ahead and and make value judgments and so it's it's really important that you familiarize your your own human apparatus with the quality spectrum and and then use it as best you can until the time I mean it, it's never going to be replaced I mean, just as the same thing is going to be true with hops you know people people can you know, and, and this is, this is the rule that I learned in television. Don't, don't count on the scope, right? You can, you can believe that that camera, because you looked at the scope, the numbers, all the, all the dots are in the boxes right now. But when you look at it on, on camera, you know, look at it on the, on the, on the monitor, it doesn't match the other cameras. So you're going to have to paint it. Right. Um, and the same thing is true with, with sensory analysis. You're, you're I mean, in, in every endeavor, every, every, theater you're going to have to figure out where your own you know human mechanism um sits with respect to all of these things that you've got to analyze and and make judgments on it and and in fact i you know, i have to rely on james to tell me no that 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 uh, that drum's red ken <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's colorblind but, yeah sure so, but but it's uh, difficult you know, to make fruit wines with this man <laughs> i'm really counting on my nose and my taste buds picking cherries i don't know how he even gets a cherry because red and green you can't tell the difference well you, you make it's adjustments. You, you you uh you, the human the human mechanism also uh comes to understand the this you know over 20 however many years of picking charbakes uh, to figure out which ones are ripe and which ones are not but uh but that's that's you know that's very much the situation is we we, we rely heavily on our own analysis of the product um and and because well, we, we have you have to we have to there are no there's no analysis at all on this right. even if you get a full truck like 55 drums of honey it comes with no analysis whatsoever there's a little bit of moisture analysis because our beekeeper does that for each individual drum he'll note the moisture content but that's it yeah we know where it's from we know who's doing it he's extracting the honey directly into the drums 
and we generally buy directly from uh, the beekeeper without um, any sort of processing at, at the honey packer. You know, they they will do all kinds of stuff at these honey packing operations, and some of them are good to, for honey quality, and some of them are bad. Like what? So uh, filtration for one. I mean, even just processing honey. We talked a little bit about the the bee blankets. The bee blankets are just like a it's a thermal wrap for a drum, and you can get them for pails. You can get them for drums. You can get them for totes. Um, most honey that's in totes it, or tanks, are, like you can order a tanker truck of honey if you really are interested. Um, most of that is filtered because you it, it, to make it flowable, to make it to make it liquid, to make it easy to work with, to make it able. To make it so that you're able to work with it on a reasonable time scale, you know? And so what's reasonable? If it goes in a tanker truck and then it becomes an almost solid, and then you have to heat that up to get it to come out of a tanker truck. Right. You don't want to leave a tanker truck sitting there for a couple of days to warm it back up. You Great. have to heat it up at every step. You have to heat it in the tank. You have to heat it in the manifold. You have to heat it in the pipes. Yeah. And so there's a lot of heating that goes along with processing honey. And so getting it from the extractor, from the beekeeping operation directly into the drum it's going to it's going to turn solid immediately because he's not filtering it any sort of beeswax or pollen or a, a, literally a bee's knee will cause the honey to crystallize very rapidly it'll act as a seed so you're very quickly stuck with 660 pounds in a steel cylinder that you need to get into a tank and so heating it is a necessary thing at this point um and it's also necessary for filtration. It's necessary for packaging. If every step from the beekeeper on, if it goes, if a drum of honey goes from a beekeeper to a honey packer, they're going to do something to it, even if it's just heating it up a couple times to get it into a smaller container. So generally speaking, if you've got pails, it means that it's gone through a honey packing operation or it's been put in the pail directly by the beekeeper. So if you have a small enough operation that you can buy pails of honey directly from a beekeeper, that's awesome. We get pails of honey like that all the time. I just spoke with Wayne Gibbons. I bought a, a, a pail of his yellow sweet clover honey, which is apparently phenomenal. But, um, you know, for one batch, we're using two or three drums for like a mid-sized batch. And so that's the leap that we may have missed is, Going from what is very, very small, you know, and meteries can be very small because of the nature of the business, because of the nature of the capital requirements for a metery. A lot of these folks are starting off with very little background in professional winemaking, and they're starting on a very uh, small scale. Like we, we here, I, I feel like we're fairly large. We have eight or nine employees. I feel like this is one of the, it's the biggest operation we've ever had here. Um, but I still, we are legally still a boutique winery. We're very small winery, legally speaking. Meteries are often much smaller than we are. So they're using pails. They're use, they're thinking about breaking into drums. What that usually means is they're getting 10 to a hundred pails of honey that is generally, generally filtered unless they're, unless they're getting it from somebody that they know, unless the beekeeper is putting it in the pails directly, as opposed to going from drums to pails. So Generally speaking, if you can get to the drum quantity and if you can get closer to the beekeeper, it's going to be of a higher quality. But then you have to deal with the reality of of solid honey. Those honey packers are not necessarily looking. I mean, I mean mead in the total use of honey uh, is a very small part of the overall honey industry. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, and so they are not necessarily trying needing to 
optimize processes for yeah. those mead makers out there, um, you know, because there's just so many other users of honey out there in the general yeah. general economy. Literally, General General Mills is one of the um, top purchasers of honey in yeah. the United States. Yeah. It's four or five percent of their total bill for honey nut Cheerios primarily, um, and so they're using tanker trucks, like sure, ten tanker sure. trucks a quarter, um, and it's just a different level of quality. Um, for bakers, they, it's literally a, sure, a separate sure. grade and it's, um, you know, how they process the honey has a lot of implications for its downstream uses, but really anything like they're, they're doing really wild things in the honey industry right, right now that I'm just now learning about. So I'm getting into beekeeping and I'm writing, um, the, you know, some articles I'm working on a book, but, um, there are honey dehydrators, you know, there are guys that are trying to take truckloads of fermenting honey drying it out to pass it off as honey that is not previously fermenting and they're not doing anything else they're yeah. just drying it out so it's existing there's existing biological activity in the honey it's fermenting away 19 percent, 20 percent moisture content there but in, instead of doing something else with it they're running it through some relatively expensive machinery to lower the moisture content so that they can sell it. Yeah. But it's not being labeled as such. Sure. So sure. You, you never know how much heat the honey has experienced. You never know how much filtration and you never know. I mean, that's kind of like spoofulation of the honey itself, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the one thing, I mean, I'm, I'm going to back up to Bill Pfeiffer for just a second. Um, Bill taught me one of the most important principles that I know of in terms of of, of brewing and, and mead making. And his concept was that everything that you do in the process is an opportunity to screw up. Yeah. Right? Every, every process that you add to your total process, every individual step that you add, which is an intervention, is a chance to mess things up. And the, the best thing to do is to start with the highest quality ingredients and then get the hell out of the way, right? It, and it is, it is I mean, I, forgive me if you've heard the line before, but it is a little bit like the, you know, the Ginger Rogers comment that, yeah, I do everything Fred does, but I do it backwards and in heels. But you need, but you need, to, you need to, to do it in such a fashion that, that, that you, you know, you, you, you do the things that you need to do and none of the things that you don't need to do. And so we try to buy the honey directly from the beekeeper and we ask the honey, the beekeeper to take it out of the, out of the hives and put it in the drum. I mean, well, he's, he's doing that anyways. Um, but instead of selling it to a processor, sell it to us directly. And, and so now we know we, we've got exactly what he made, not no, no HFCS added, no, any, you know, none of that stuff going on that, that, Every step along the way, there's a chance for somebody to do that to you. Um, so you shorten that chain of custody, and so that there are just no there are no steps between that and uh, and, and, yeah. and no no steps that could potentially you know no, we're not going to take the pollen out, we're not going to take the colloids out, we're not going to take the propolis out, we're not going to take any of that stuff out. We're going to leave it in, and and I mean that's that's a big part of our our philosophy is that um, you know the, the 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 deliciousness of our mead is always going to be about what's in there and not about what we took out. Yeah. 
um, it's it's about it's about finding great things, and 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 then maintaining their quality through the process. Talk to me, Ken, about you know as you are using this sensory organ, you know your your own senses, and you are evaluating these lots of honey from this you know beekeeper, this this uh, you know honey producer who you now have trust in, and you know they're making they're producing at a general quality and that, and then they're doing it in a, in a authentic way and, you know, not cutting corners, you know, as you're tasting across these lots of honey, what do you then start to look for? Um, you know, are there some, you know, some things that automatically might disqualify something for you? Are there you know, like positive selection attributes where when you, you, you know, taste and smell this, then it, it initially, it really jumps out at you and becomes something you want to use. What, what does that, process of evaluation look like for you? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to back up and, and talk about one of the things that I did kind of for myself and also for the people that have attended the classes that I've taught at, uh, at UC Davis. I, I did a, th- a thing on, um, the sense of human sense of smell and taste. I did a presentation on that. And what, what I did in that presentation is to, is to isolate the major components of honey, which is dextrose and fructose and and then maltose, which is probably the the third sugar that there's that that is um, extant in honey, and then and then also to understand the acids that are commonly in honey, which is which is gluconic acid, and then the, the acids that are commonly in fruit meats, which are citric uh, citric malic and tartaric, and 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 to taste them individually. I did this initially to familiarize myself with the components of honey on an elemental level. And, and so now I, I can taste through honeys and say, well, this has got more fructose or this has got more dextrose or this has got a lot of maltose. Um, and uh, I, I haven't done maltotrios yet, but I want to. Uh, I, I can taste the difference between all those, those different acids. But then there's also the issue of, of uh, the balance in the aromatics between florality and and fruitiness and those are those are present in all honeys and do you want to lean towards something with a high degree of florality like orange blossom or do you want to lead uh, to lean towards something that has a higher degree of fruitiness like like blackberry blossom right there each honey's got its own signature I mean, each individual honey has its own signature, and then more broadly, blackberry blossom—not not a specific example of blackberry blossom, but all blackberry blossoms are going to have a higher level of maltose and a higher level of fruitiness than orange blossom does, for example. Um, so, so you know, you taste a lot of honeys. <laughs> I like I, I collected hundreds of honeys, um, and in addition to the ones, I mean, you know, many hundreds of honeys, you know, including things like. Uh, Tasmanian leatherwood and uh, blue gum and and red gum and the, the the stuff from Australia and the stuff from the United States and um, get get familiar with them, um, but then you, you do have to rely on yourself. and And what what I know for a fact is that here's another analytical tool I use. I, I will frequently uh, dissolve the honey in the same relative ratio of liquid that I would use if I was making a traditional. So three to one or four to one of water and honey 
and then smell and taste it at that point because you'll know then it, when it's more diluted what's there. And it's very much like you add a little bit of water to a to a glass of scotch and, sure. and the thing the thing blossoms and opens up. The honey will do the same thing for you when you do that. Um, but but then. Um, understanding and, and being critical. This is, this is kind of, I guess it'll get to the, to the, to the meat open that maybe we can talk about later, but this notion that, that there is going to be truly a, a subjective analysis of good or bad. Uh, do you like it or don't you? Degustibus non est disputandum. Um, do you like it? Is it great or is it good? And you have to be willing to make that value judgment. For me, the things that I don't like in honey are vegetal characters or, or pine, you know, excessive piney characters. The, all of those things, um, if they're not pleasant when you're tasting it as a honey, they're not going to be pleasant after you've fermented it out, especially if you're in a situation where, you know, you're making something that's off dry or dry. You've removed all of the sweetness that makes the thing just sort of subjectively pleasant and now what you're left with is everything else so you, you have to be able to analyze the honey to determine is what's there that's not sweet pleasing yeah that, that hedonic judgment let's uh i think that's really interesting and i love to get in the minds of of great makers to kind of see what that you know that thought process looks like i want to talk let's talk about mead making next before we do that from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brew House to the integrated hotbacks on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brew houses, SS Brewtech has taken technology they invented working with world-renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head on over to ssbrewtech.com. Also, have you heard of Christian Hansen? They are the fermentation experts with over 100 years of experience in dairy and wine. They're now bringing that knowledge of microbes to brewers with their SmartBev range of frozen liquid yeast and freeze-dried bacteria. This portfolio allows for consistent performance at the brewery and produces a range of high-quality brews. Reimagine what your beer can be. Go to chr-hansen.com to learn more on the SmartBev line of products. And... Join the craft beer community in Sacramento, March 19th through 22nd for the California Craft Beer Summit. Access educational sessions on business and technical skills and network with industry leaders all under one roof. Speakers include David Walker, Natalie Vinny Chalurzo, and Ken Grossman. The summit is an important opportunity for your entire brewing team from production to sales to marketing to develop their knowledge, skills, and experience in the industry. Visit cacraftbeersummit.com for the full speaker and seminar lineup and to register. All right. So we've got quality honey. You've, uh, you've determined that. And I imagine, you know, you've, we, we could probably talk about that at, you know, and just focus the entire podcast on that, but I would love to actually talk about some process around, around mead making as well. Um, you, within the, the meter yourself, you try to keep temperature on that honey as low as you possibly can. You have a very slow process for using those bee blankets to bring those drums up so that it can then flow, but you're not going to degrade the quality of the honey. Where, right. What does the process then look like after that for you? And what are some of these differentiating points that you start really focusing on in order to maintain quality then through the fermentation and then fruit process? You know, it's starting starting with the drum of raw honey or a pail of raw honey if you can get it. Um, the he, heating it very slowly 
trying to keep the temperature at about 100 degrees is really 100 important. degrees, okay. If you are at, in a hot room and you want to do things quickly, it'll be up to 130, 140, and you'll, you'll have your honey from solid to liquid in a day or a day and a half. For us, it takes a week or more sometimes. It's really slow. Um, and um, from there, you know... What difference does that make? What Like, what happens to honey if you bump it up to 130, 140 for a fast heat yeah, to so get a flowable quick. You can do this at home if you have a jar of honey and, and like a double boiler setup or like a sous vide type setup. You can crank the heat up on honey and your whole kitchen will smell like honey. And the reason that um, the reason that is is because those molecules are leaving the honey. And so if we're driving trying off to, all yeah, the aromatics that way. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it, it, there are, so with raw honey, it is actually more like blood. It's more like wine. It is a living thing. It's got enzymes. It's got yeast. It's got bacteria. Um, and turns out, you know, the you know, 20 or 30 enzymes or so that are from the honeybees actually do a lot of really necessary things for the honey. And when you filter and when you heat, those enzymes are degraded. You know, brewers are really, we talked about it in the, in the article, brewers are extraordinarily familiar with enzymes from enzymes being in malt. Um, not a lot of people realize there's enzymes in honey. Um, alpha amylase in, in honey, you know, is degraded um, with heat. And so bakers, if you're making bread with honey, you don't want that enzyme there because your bread will be out of control. Um, so, um, not having, uh, having, having all that stuff in there, all of the flavor, all of the aroma, all of the enzymes, even all of those other components that aren't in a lot of other honeys that are graded for, you know, the shelf at Walmart, um, having the beeswax, having the propolis, having all of those other hive products is what they call them. All the pollen, all of that stuff, uh, really does add to the beverage. I mean, you, you can take a real, the difference between a real cherry and a cherry dum-dum sucker is a matter of opinion, really. It's some organic chemist some, somewhere saying that this is what cherry is going to be like. And when you have ultra-filtered honey that's been heated 20 different ways to Sunday, what you're getting is this like shell of what it actually is. And so using raw honey, processing it slowly, retains more of that flavor and aroma. It's, it takes time. It it sucks. You can't do it in a big processing room. I think they call them hot tanks, but they're really like drive-in rooms where you flip the drum upside down, and as it's melting, it goes into the tanks. And then you can process it, and you're heating it in every little manifold. Um, from there, you know, once it's liquid, we use the pump. You know, using a honey pump is really the best thing that you can do for yourself. I said, if you love yourself and you're a meadery owner, get yourself a honey pump. If you're a brewery owner... And you've got somebody, you know, lifting 100 pails of honey, you really need to reconsider your life's choices. Um, but using the pump also allows you to do fun things. Um, when we first started out, we were using stick a stick blender, more or less. It's a commercial stick blender. It's four feet long. You get it at the restaurant supply store. And we were mixing right in the drums. I think the first drum was difficult, but once you empty a drum, you've got a drum and now you can use it to mix. Um, and so we would mix honey and water right in the drum. It's they're, they're lined with a food grade liner. They're really kind of handy. We've since gone on to get what's called a pump over cart, which is a really handy utility cart um, that can contain liquid and it's stainless. It's really awesome. But it's not quite to the level of um, a, a mixing tank. So Latina, for example, makes an amazing 
mixing tank on wheels, 4,000 liters, big motor on the top. And so most people in the meat industry, when we started, were using mixing tanks if they, if they were of a size that would necessitate that they would buy a honey pump. They would be filling the tank with their water and then pumping the honey into it and using this big paddle wheel um, to mix their honey must and then pump that into a fermentation tank of some kind. So they were doing that at Bee Nectar even um, when, we, when we got started. And I think it was a 4,000 liter mixing tank, but um, that was a lot of space. I mean, you saw some of our tanks, uh, some of our biggest tanks are 3,100 liters or, or so. So a 4,000 liters is a pretty big tank for us. Um, and we really didn't have an idea of where we wanted to put it. And it was a little bit too big. And we're like, we don't really want to do this. So we, we just did our, our little stick blender thing for a long time. Um, and then I, I, I don't know how it started, but we were having some conversation about the honey going in and the water going in and the honey must coming out. And I think I'm, I probably made some stupid comment about the flux capacitor from Back to the Future. And I said, well, what if we... What if this was kind of continuous or semi-continuous and we just use a high-speed wine pump to recirculate the water at, you know, at top speed and then the honey pump in separately at a slow speed? You know, our, at the time, our high-speed wine pump, it was one single speed on or off. It was really challenging. But the honey pump was a variable speed, self-priming, awesome pump. You know, um, most brewery pumps are more along the lines of what our honey pump is now. But a honey pump is uniquely capable of pumping vis, you know, high viscosity, high viscosity fluids. And it, so you don't have to heat your honey to 140 degrees just to pump it. You can pump it to, you can heat it to 90 or so and run the pump slower. You're not going to be the, you know, ultra efficient manufacturing god, but um, pump the honey slow, water high speed, and then out comes this amazing mixture of honey and water and at the same time you're 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 pumping a ton of air into the must and so we just started doing that i think in the drums and then we we graduated to a tank when we did a, our first nutmeg mead this way and that was kind of a revelation we were like we don't need to use the stick blenders anymore the honey pump not only is a safety device and a necessary device for working with the honey but it's also now part of the process so what we now call the flux capacitor method is how we mix our honey and water. And very quickly after I told, I, I won't name any names, but I told some other meadery owners that we were doing this and they were like, wait a minute, you're doing what? <laughs> I was like, yeah, just use your honey pump. And they were like, you're what? We don't have one. <laughs> you know, a lot of people were using these mixing tanks and going in with the pails. So you have this really tall mixing tank full of water, you know, it, it's a relatively expensive tank. And then you're, lifting the pail over your head and i said listen you got to stop doing that yeah we've come up with this new thing we don't know what we're doing we're figuring it out as we go commercially speaking you know we can't just use the drill and the paddle wheel anymore which is basically what the stick blender was it's a commercial version of the of using a drill at home so i don't know if there's any sort of correlate with home mead makers at the moment but um if you're a commercial mead maker or brewer using honey listening to this get yourself a honey pump because it changes everything in terms of your safety your uh, respect for your own body um, as a worker and then also for process it's super easy to integrate into uh, a, a mead making process like we use without having to have that gigantic tank sitting empty in the corner 
Um, we just mix in the in the pump over cart, or we mix right in the tank. If it's a if it's a tank that uh, we're going to put, you know, two metric tons of fruit in, the fruit goes in the tank, and we'll use the the pump over cart to mix two or three little batches of must. But it's it's pretty formulaic um, at that point. Sure, sure. And the flux capacitor method really is, in my yeah. opinion, the industry yeah. leading method. Yeah, uh, we 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 knew we had. Well, before we opened, we knew that we were going to try and buy uh, honey direct from beekeepers. And if you're going to buy from a honey, uh, from a, pardon me, from a beekeeper who's producing quantities that are sufficient for us to make yeah. commercial, quant, you know, batches of mead with, it was going to arrive here in drums. And we knew that we just didn't, we didn't have any means of dealing with that unless we got ourselves honey pump. So we, we had a honey pump before we had a meadery. It was, it was that was one of the first things along with a few drums of honey from a, a friend of mine who's a beekeeper that we bought and and uh we've been using it ever since it's it's the the bottling line is a magnificent thing <laughs> right i'm not going to deny that the bottling line is a magnificent thing but in terms of of just having gone from amateur mead maker kind of guy to being able to move and then empty a drum of honey that was that was just a, that yeah. was just a huge transition there and 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 when James is saying you know you can slow it down it, it me what when you slow it down it means the difference between taking uh you know maybe 12 minutes to empty an entire 55 gallon drum of honey or you you know taking 16 or 18 minutes to 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 empty yeah. an entire it is a dangerously powerful pump i mean sure, it'll take sure. cold liquid honey and lift it 15 feet in the air so yeah. Um, you know, it's a very low, relatively low speed, very high torque pump. Um, yeah. and we've had it since before we, we really were making good use of it really. I mean, we were using this, the stick blenders in the drum and right. the honey pump was sitting over in the corner yeah. wondering what the hell we were doing. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, no, we, we were, were using, really yeah. spoiled. We were using the honey pump. We were using the honey pump the whole time. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I've got, I've got pictures of the first batch we ever made and we use the honey pump on it. No, I You understand. guys are really passionate about the pump. It's, uh, <laughs> it is, it is a Vermont yeah. flexi pump. You can't yeah, buy one They don't anymore. exist anymore. I don't they, think they, they are no longer in, for okay. sale, but um, we're going to, we're going to try and. We're going to keep ours going. We bought a huge selection of of, uh, of replacement parts. So, um, yeah, buying a honey pump with triclover fittings on it was relatively challenging. I think we had to do it custom, and it the the fittings are way too close. And so, I think there's an opportunity in the market for you know for somebody that's making equipment for brewers for mead makers to make a pump that fits because the the beekeeping standard is not a triclover fitting. They have all kinds of different quick connects and Dins. din fittings and yeah. it's so um just sourcing a good pump was was relatively challenging yeah. and this company i don't think exists anymore but there are honey pumps that you can get out there you're going to get them from beekeeping supplies basically and you may have to get you know a, your sanitary welder to put the fittings that you like on it but i, I wouldn't if we if we were going to do it all over again i wouldn't create a metery of any size without getting a honey pump yeah just because I, you know, as an advocate for workers and human beings in general, lifting pails of honey is not a, a an activity that the human body sure, is meant to do. Sure. Well, let's talk about fermentation from there. You know, you mentioned that this, you know, this using this honey in this raw and processed form, you know, means there's a lot more in there, including enzymes, which uh, you know can impact 
fermentation. Obviously, that kind of stereotypical approach to mead is that you have a you know very nutrient poor uh, you know fermentation that you need to you know you know uh, make sure the yeast has what it needs to kind of function in that environment. For you all, you know, how does you know fermentation using honey in this way? Uh, you know, what does that look like? And then how do, does the fruit that you find yourself using also impact the approach to fermentation? So I think generally speaking, um, I learned, I'll, I'll make an analogy that I think is pretty apt. When I first got, uh, my first foreign car was a Volkswagen and I was putting regular gas in it. And the, guy, the first time I had an engine issue, the guy looked at me like I was totally stupid. And I didn't, I just, I didn't know you had to put a certain octane level of gas in a, you know, certain uh, foreign cars. So like a lot of mead makers are approaching mead fermentation, like they have a race car and they're putting regular unleaded in it. They're, it's a very nutrient poor fermentation. They're, they're using yeasts that are really like the race car of yeast. If you're trying to, if they have an alcohol tolerance of 18, 19%, I guess a very, um, tolerant yeast in many respects of, uh, of acidity, of alcohol, of uh, osmotic pressure, and then you're providing it with little to no nutrients. So we kind of approach fermentation, generally speaking, and Ken can speak on it more, but we generally uh, are approaching it like this is a really fine automobile and you have to take care of it. Yeah, we because otherwise it's going to run like shit. Yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna try to provide the yeast the amount of assimilable nitrogen that it needs to complete the fermentation to the alcohol level that we're shooting for, and then completely run out, um, which may be a little shy of what well uh, winemakers, for example, might recommend. But our our I mean we're I mean. I'll, this isn't proprietary. We're going to shoot for 225 parts per million of yeast assimilable nitrogen in in our originating must, and to some extent, we'll also we will also adjust that um, through experience. And if we learn, for example, that well, well one of the, the things experience we learned, of exploding tanks. Well, we we learn, for example, that you don't need to add any uh, nitrogen to to <laughs> a a raspberry mead. Yeah. Uh, because uh, the raspberries had um, about 650 parts per million of yeast assimilable nitrogen in just the juice. So even if we were adding a bunch, a, a little bit of water and a bunch of honey uh, that, that had- Still do you know, the dilution and it's still the right kind of concentration of that. Yeah, where you're still high. <laughs> yeah. You're still above where you really want to, where you really want to be. Um, so, so we, we do, we do measure the, 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 uh, assimilable nitrogen content in, in the fruits. We haven't measured all of them. I'll be completely honest with you. It's expensive to do and we haven't done it. And it, it also means you've got to really go ahead and do some crazy stuff to, to get the, the information that you need. But, um, we shoot for 225 parts per million of, of use assimilable nitrogen and, and hope that, I mean, in the ideal scenario, you're not leaving anything for other microorganisms to feast on when your fermentation is complete. That's, that's, you just, you just want to like, everything likes assimilable nitrogen. Humans like assimilable nitrogen. Uh, amino acids are, are part of the package here in, in just about everything that's, that's, uh, you know, not a plant. Um, so that's especially, imp- I don't mean to interrupt you. I have a sticky note for me, so don't interrupt, but that's especially important 
if you're making the style of mead that we're making because a lot of people think, and a lot of professional mead makers have tried to make the types of mead that we make. We're not filtering anything. We're not using sulfite. We're not using sorbate. We're not using any chemical preservatives at all. And so if really you, just no stabilizers, no nothing. Wow. No and sorbates. Nothing. A lot of people are like, that's, I can do that. And they'll try to do it and you'll end up with exploding bottles in your basement or on the shelf at retail. And it's because they're, they're leaving nutrients at the end of the day in their, in the product. There are a lot of mead making regimens that, um, are just like, they leave a ton of nutrient in the finished product. So you have to use sulfites. You have to use sorbates. And even then it's going to taste like that stuff. It'll taste relatively yeasty. So one of the very common, um, yeast nutrients that's used in mead making is basically yeast holes, the boiled yeast, um, and f- there are certain protocols which, in my opinion, as a as a rule, you can taste the 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 dead yeast. And at the end of the day, it tastes really kind of mineral, and I can kind of tell. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna I'm not naming any names. I'm not gonna comment. I'm not gonna comment. All I my entire my entire principle. We use diammonium phosphate for for a a, a, a good chunk of the the uh, assimilable nitrogen that we're trying to get into the, and we also use uh, some Fermate O in order to try and uh, provide the micronutrients that the yeast needs because it needs more than just assimilable nitrogen. Uh, there's a really good article on this whole concept called Optimizing Honey Fermentation. If you Google those words, Optimizing Honey Fermentation, there's this guy that wrote this really yeah, good article that. on how to do yeast fermentation or uh, mead fermentations, and it, you'd probably be worth a read. But our, our, our concept is that, I mean, if you're using DAP and you're using it at sparing levels, not ex- you're not using it exclusively. You're adding it after after the lag period has begun. You're you're, you're following all of the protocols that you need to pro, you know to follow to not you know blast everything right off the bat and whatnot. Um, then you can then you can use the DAP and it's all gone when you're done. It's completely consumed. Uh, yeast needs phosphates as well as, as the, the, the ammoniums that, that it, you know, the NH3 groups that it's going to get out of, of DAP. And, and so, you know, theoretically, or maybe even more than theoretically in, in reality, it's, it's all gone if you've done it correctly. Um, and, and that's, that's part of our, of our mentality. We, you know, it's a Pfeifferism again. <laughs> use only what you need to use, and no more. Um, it's interesting. Obviously, you know the idea of natural winemaking is is very current. Uh, you know, within the wine world, you know, there's you know plenty of fans of natural wine, and you know, of course, within that world, there's also a wide range of quality of producers in there. Uh, and there are those that are, you know, sloppy and make it quote unquote natural and, uh, you know, allow for some of the mistakes that come along with that, that just express as, you know, quote unquote character. Um, but in fact, making re- true high quality natural wine is an incredibly precision process. As you mentioned it, that you have to, nail every little piece of this so that it all so that that finished product works exactly the way that it should and doesn't uh, you know create any additional processes there after the fact because you don't have any way to stop things from happening uh, otherwise right it, it's very sweet so our our meads are in the sweet wine category for to measure them but some of them are literally off the, 
the chart for what normal, like the category of sweet wine generally is. And so some of our meads are sweeter in the bottle than a lot of meads are before they're fermented. Like, so not only do you have to nail all those things as a natural winemaker, but you have to understand that what you're creating is a potential bomb. You know, yeah. it's either going to going to be um, it is still highly yeah. highly fermentable as it's sitting right there exactly. in the bottle. Sure, and you know, a, a lot of people they think you know you're misspeaking when you tell them what your final gravity is. It's like no, that you need that amount of sweetness because we put in a metric ton and a half of black currants, and black currants are really bracingly acidic. If it's just slightly sweeter, it will be totally out of balance. So. Uh, there are a lot of elements that go into that. That is really cool, though, that you are, you know, having to measure and incorporate what that fruit will do in this process because you're using such a high, such a significant amount of fruit in this as well. Well, it's it's a uh, it's I'll I'll use the catchphrase that I've used in the past. We're playing with dynamite, um, and and I say that because. Yes, we're leaving a lot of sugar in there, but we're 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 fermenting fruits. If you're familiar with most wines, um, you know Chardonnays or Cabernet Sauvignons or Merlots, Pinots, um, we're we're fermenting fruits that have either a few times or many times the amount of acidity that's in uh, wine grapes. Maybe maybe six grams per liter. Um, Eight grams per liter, sometimes ten, and something that's really acidic, like a, a, a you know a trocken, trocken riesling, for example. But but um, we're fermenting cherries and raspberries that that are going to come in at twenty two, twenty three. Blackberries that can come in at thirty three, and then black currants that can come in at eighty to hundred grams per liter of wow. acidity. And so there's no way you can ferment that dry and have it be balanced. Yeah. You have to have, in order for it to be pleasant, in order for it to be delicious, you have to leave a corresponding amount of sugar in, in the beverage. And we have spent a lot of time trying to work out the recipes such that we add that much sugar at the beginning of the honey, at the beginning of the fermentation, and end up with the, the level of sugar that will be delicious when you're done. But as James said, that's going to leave a whole lot of, you know, uh, potential for, for disaster there. If, if you're leaving that many grams of sugar in your finished product to balance that many grams of acidity in your finished product, you, you'd better, um, you better be doggone clean. And that would mean then that every recipe that you have, it takes into consideration the fruit, the exact fruit that you're using yeah. to nail the right balance of sugar to acidity in the finished product that there really is not a just a consistent same base recipe but that fruit is that integral piece of everything and that would then depend on where you're getting that fruit what the season looks like for that fruit all these other additional kind of complexities yeah. that, that feed into that well, so we're doing that kind of winemaking that a lot of mead makers are not doing which is that we're trying to do the same thing 20 times a year we're trying to do the same, you know, we're trying to make the same product or with a similar amount of consistency from a highly variable agricultural product. Uh, well, all of them are highly variable. Yeah, many many different agricultural products. But we're not trying to do, you know, 45 new SKUs in 2023. We're, we're trying to, we're going to make the cherry mead. We're going to make the raspberry mead. And we're going to use the same honey 
and the same fruit, and it's going to be batch number 12, and it might be a little boring, but we have nailed this process and these recipes in, in a lot of ways because we've done them over and over and over. I, I'm, I'm going to... I'm 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 going to beg to differ with James, right here, right here, right here on a podcast. But well, with the with the it might be a little boring thing, because that's precisely what people are doing in in von Romanet, right? They're they're making the same thing with the same grapes, year after year after year, and um, the, the magnificence in that and that happens in Barolo and Barbaresco and in. Burgundy and in the German Riesling growing areas, they're working with one thing. They're working with one grape and, and the only thing they can do to differentiate themselves is to increase their quality. They don't have the option to, to do, to do different things with it. And I mean, we're really yeah. fortunate in, in the right. world of mead right. in that we can, when there's, there is no rule right now that says, okay, you mead makers, you can only do this. Right, um, you, you, we can do whatever kind of whatever the heck we want, yeah. right? And, we're, we're, and we are making it up as we go along. But by the same token, the restrictions that they that are placed around those winemakers force them to work on quality, and and they're not out there trying to come up with a new recipe all the time. They're out there trying to figure out how can I make this Nebbiolo grape more delicious in a bottle. Yeah, that that kind of discipline, that kind of restriction and, and, and focus and limitation creates for them a field in which the only thing they can do, right, is focus on quality. And you've got brewers doing a similar thing. I'm not saying it's boring to me, by the way. <laughs> it's, it could, it's boring to the folks that are, are looking to get their ticks up on untapped. You know, if they need that 5,000th check-in for 2022, you're probably not going to find it at Trams Mead because we're trying to do... We're sure, trying to nail sure. what we're doing. Like and a brewing, lager brewing, lager brewer that wants to brew the same beer yeah. over and over again yeah. and keep working on perfecting it. That's the way that Chris, you all are approaching this. Chris sure. is a fantastic example. Chris Johnson. Chris from, Johnson uh, Green from, Bench. from Green Bench. He has obsessed over his Czech Pilsner for years. And I really, really love what he's doing with it. And when I was there, he poured me like five, six or five or six. It seemed like more than five or ten different Czech Pilsners and poured them five different ways. And, um, you know, the same Czech Pilsner poured four different ways. Sure. Changes sure. the, be and he's just so obsessive about it. And he's focused in on that one yep. style. And it, it's just, it is really, I think, a, a model for a lot of brewers in a lot of ways. You got to nail know, what you're right. doing before you try to adjunct it 25 different ways. I think our audience can certainly appreciate that, that kind of discipline in, in your process around that. Um, well, let's, you know, let's talk a little bit about you know you know some of the the parameters in the, of those fruits because again, you all work very closely with that, and I think that's something that, that people would love to to help understand. You know, you mentioned some of the differences in acidities in those fruits. You know, is, you know, how do you you know are there any other concerns that come with, you know, specific fruits, um, you know, that, you know, create or that, that push process in different kinds of directions? So, yes. Um, fruit, when you're buying a metric ton of fruit, um, it, it's a little bit different than if you go down to the shop. Um, a lot of mead makers at the home scale, they assume, and a, a lot of chefs, they assume the fresher is better. Like if you get something fresh and it's not frozen, it'll be inherently be better with fruit and with vegetables in many respects, at least in the United States as, as 
industrial agriculture is set up right now, that's not always the case. It, you know, your tomatoes are green and hard like a rock when they're picked and they end up on a truck and then they don't ripen, you know, until it's in a different state. Um, it's the same way with a lot of fruit. You know, they pick them unripe because unripe, they're, they're more solid. They're not leaking all over through the cardboard tray. You can process it. And so a lot of, there's this transition from buying or thinking about fresh fruit to thinking about frozen fruit. Cause a lot of people erroneously think just because it's frozen, it's less of a, of a higher quality, but more often than not, and cherries is a great example. If they're really, truly ripe, they don't really go through the pitting machine very well. You know, it's a messy process. And for the processor, you're losing money in the form of this liquid that they then, they turn into concentrates and some other, they try to recoup their, some of their money on it. But, um, Picking at the peak of ripeness and then having it frozen, um, sometimes directly in the field with a, a blast tunnel, um, can actually be much better because they're picking it when it's got more sugar, when it's got more acid, when it's got more flavor. And then you've got two different, basically two different um, forms that you can get the fruit in. You can, if you're looking for whole real fruit like we are, and that's, I guess it's a big if. For a lot of brewers, we are using whole fruit exclusively. We don't use any fruit uh, purees or concentrates or flavorings or anything like that. We um, will get it in what's called IQF, individually quick frozen, which yeah. is a really gr great way to get fruit, or straight pack. And straight pack is just basically in a bucket, frozen solid, and that can be relatively challenging when you're at the top of a 10-foot ladder and you've got your thermal well at the bottom of the tank that you don't want to destroy. Um, and so we've done that. It's possible. It's very loud, uh, especially the first couple 40 pound blocks, but, um, you know, bombs away in over the top with the fruit, either IQF or straight pack. Straight pack is relatively challenging to, you don't have B blanket style heaters for your straight packs. No. So we, <laughs> we try not to defrost the fruit too much. We, we just install the 40 foot freezer container at the orchard. Um, so we're going to have some ability to do some controlled defrosting, but um, we've never really had any sort of walk-in that could, I mean, yeah. we'd have, it had, would have to be for pallets and pallets of fruit. So generally speaking, when it comes in frozen, we put it right in the tank because it's easier to work with when it's not leaking everywhere. Um, Cause these, it, it's a bag in a box um, when you buy fruit, 40 yeah. pounds IQF at a time. And I prefer IQF. It's easier to work with. You can use something like a fruit elevator like they would have at a, at a grape winery. Um, we just put it right in over the top, and it's um, a relatively straightforward two-man process. One guy's on the top and one guy's on the bottom. Um, but there's, there is that. There's a difference between the fresh stuff and IQF and straight pack, and it, it, it kind of shakes out sure. in terms sure. of your process. Yeah. But um, we use both. Yeah, and there are there are, I mean, you know, there's a perfect world out there, but it, it doesn't really exist. Uh, it, it might be great to be able to make raspberry meads that were never frozen, right? And and I I did the first Charbake cherry mead that I've ever done in my life that was not frozen this past batch. There were only like 130 bottles, 127 bottles of it. It's just incredible. Um, but there are realities, you know, if, if, if we have to do three pickings of the, of the cherries, um, 
and I, I, I we did we did more than I think we did two this past year, and you you can't do that. You can't, you can't like, Oh, I'll just hold up with these and throw them in the tank uh, and just wait until no, you, you gotta, you gotta, you know, pit them and use them. And the same thing, you know, the, the, the issue with raspberries is you can't pick, I mean, if it, raspberries are, you pick a few every day, you pick a few every day, you pick a few every day, it, even commercial operations. And that's, you know, you, you're not going to come up with quantities to make commercial size batches in one day you, you you're going to end up, if you're going to make a raspberry mead, the, the great <laughs> likelihood is you're either going to make six gallons a day or you're gonna you're gonna make it with frozen fruit um it's, it's just it's just a truth um but in terms of you know when, you, when you're when we're talking about fruit i mean really right now we're, we're kind of obsessed right we're, we're starting our own orchard right if i if i can do the segue if i have permission go for it i that was going to be my next question because i think this is a natural thing to well, talk about well it is a whole nother plate in the air because the picking of the fruit is also like a, it's a whole nother can of worms right it is it is the picking of the fruit at ripeness is pretty key pretty key it's pretty key if you're shaking out a tree of cherries you're getting everything you know and you're done with the tree they sometimes they come back and they shake them a little bit, but there are certain fruits that are processed by machines and they're getting everything. They're not getting just the ripe ones. So what you're getting, what the form is it IQF? Is it handpicked? Is it machine, you know, is it machine picked? This all, um, it all matters, especially for something like black currants, especially something like cherries, they can be picked by machines. They can be, but you, then you get everything. And, and if we're everything. picking, and, and especially in the instance of black currants, um, you you can pick for true ripeness by by having a human hand go in there and figure out these are really ripe and these are really not. You can tell by the amount of the amount of effort it takes to pick them. You can tell by the the, the texture of the fruit and the shade of the fruit and all all of the all the, those decision making processes. And in fact, decision making processes are are you know right at the core of all of this. This is what's this is what's most exciting about mead for me, um, but also most challenging because. Um, Unlike in beer and brewing, we we've known for a long there. There's a few new hops that are coming along here and there, but you know, Fuggles and Cascades and Centennials they they've been here for a while, and 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 Sots and Hellertau and Tetnang. You know, these are these are these are varieties that have been determined. The same thing is true with the with the grains that we're using in Harrington and you know the Marisot or whatever. Um, these are things that have been known for. A considerable period of time. Same thing in the wine world. Everybody knows the difference between a Merlot and a Pinot and a and a Nebbiolo and a Sangiovese. The, the, those things are those things are worked out in in the wine world and have been for centuries in a lot of instances. Um, but here's mead just poking its head up and deciding, oh, you know what? We can make delicious mead with with these um, with these fruits. But just the same way there are there are hundreds of different varieties of grapes, there are at least dozens and probably more like hundreds of different varieties of black currants and raspberries and and um, gooseberries, and no one's no one's the, the the manual's not there. You can't just flip it open to page twenty two and say, oh yeah, this is the best gooseberry to make mead with. Um, the only way Wait, gonna... you don't have a catalog with the fermentation characteristics of <laughs> no. each gooseberry. No, like, no, on. no. And, and, and what, and furthermore, I mean, the same thing is yeah. true with what, which, I mean, in, in terms of yeast utilization, right. okay, that's great. You know what they do with the grapes. We have a totally different substrate. <laughs> um, but, but getting back to the honey or pardon me, getting back to the fruit question, we want to know, 
we want to know what is the best gooseberry out there, or for that matter, what are the differences between the different gooseberries when you ferment them with honey? What are the differences between different black currant varieties that when you ferment them as a mead? That information is is going to be right available to us as soon as we're done uh, figuring it out. <laughs> um, and so, I can't wait to well, read that book from you. Uh, well, that's what the orchard is about. Yeah, that is yeah. what the orchard is for. We have we have it's right a learning now, lab, and you're able to yeah. We have four different varieties of of black currants over there. We have two different varieties of red currants over there. We have uh, two different varieties of white currants over there. We have we have pink champagne. I think currants. We have more than that. Maybe we. I was, I I we have, my first three, reaction was that doesn't sound like. I think it. we have, we have we more have than that. Three. We, I think we have three white currants. We're varietal obsessed people. We are varietally obsessed people because varietal varietal everything is yeah. how. I mean that's varietal hops, varietal uh, bar- barley's to sure. make wine with, varietal grapes to make wine with, um, and then and then you get to fruit, and it's all just a freaking mystery. For, for <laughs> yeah. For, well, like Black Agnes, for example, is a, is a great example of what you're talking about. Um, it's one of our more popular meads. Um, it sells like hotcakes. We can't keep it in stock. Um, blackcurrant as a flavor, I think, is something that really resonates with the human body for whatever reason. Um, it's not super common in the United States um, because it used to be illegal to grow here. But they grow it everywhere in Europe. And we so we buy it by the metric ton from Europe because um, the producers in the United States don't grow enough even for a single batch. But when we get it um, from this company in Europe, it's nine different varieties of blackcurrants. We know what they are, but we don't know what the blend is, and, and they don't even know. Right. They're making hundreds of hundreds of thousands of of metric tons for you know the Rabina syrup people for other people jam makers, yeah, that kind of thing. Sure. And it's the same issue of the supplier isn't sort of tailoring their offering for the the consumer, which is us, you know, we, we, I would buy the same amount of black currants from them. If they would separate them out, we could sell nine different kinds. And our, our customers would really be obsessed over that. We would be obsessed over that. We've made varietal current meads that are really bad. And some of them that are really insanely good. And you're just like, well, that variety works really well in a mead. That variety is like, uh, eh, it's maybe in a blend, it yeah. would provide some sort of thing, but as, as a standalone, it's not really great. And that variety might be in this bl- is in this blend, that and we don't know what you know. So from batch to batch, this this batch six might be better than batch seven. It could be down to some sure, sure. thing that we can't control. Yeah. So the same. I we're mean, trying the same, to control as many of those variables as we can. Right, right. And we're I mean, it's out of our control right now. Um, when, when you when you look at how raspberry production occurs, and when you look at how uh, black currant production occurs, these these places. Um, plant multiple different varieties and so then they plant them such that they can extend their growing and harvesting season everything doesn't get ripe yeah. all at the same time right uh, you, you don't want that to be the case you want you want to have these over here get ripe first and then these over here get ripe next and these over here get ripe next the same thing I and mean, then the same thing happens with with a lot of wine producers with the way their grape varieties uh, become become available for for uh, fermentation and that's you know that's that's wonderful um, and then they all end up you know in some giant frozen thing. And like James says, we have no we have no clue. Did, did we get more of sure, these this sure. year or more of those yeah. this year? When were they harvested? What blend were they picking at that time? Um, it's 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 just a, you know, a crapshoot. And picking black currants is awful. It sucks. We, sure, we use sure. like a fork, and your back hurts, and you use a chair. And they're really they're, they don't want to come off. It's not like a blueberry. Yeah. And so they they have this like car wash type machine, which just brushes the whole plant and takes everything bugs 
bird yeah. nests, yeah. unripe black currants, ripe black currants, and then they're processing it. So there so. is definitely this, you know, more precise way of harvesting at ripeness. You know, from a commercial standpoint, having a human being make that judgment as they're picking a plant or a tree for this fruit, I mean, that's an immense amount of difficult labor, and it's also high cost compared to machine yeah. harvesting. I mean, it really demands a different economy around the finished product to be able to support that kind of labor. You know, I mean, th- yeah. those are a whole bunch of additional challenges. It is, it's fascinating and, and uh, you know, inspiring to see that you are able to communicate that to end consumers and show a difference in the product so that people are willing to pay what it takes in order to support that kind of, you know, precision labor around, uh, you know, some of these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there, I mean, if I can, if I can answer uh, two different subjects, one of them is, one of them is the decision-making process and the other one is the scale. But that decision-making process is in fact, um, exactly what great wineries are delivering. Right, what you're what you're paying for the quality that occurs in the bottle, and the reason someone's given it a 95 or a 98 or a 100 point score, is the cumulative impact of decision after decision after decision after decision. How much am I? Are we going to irrigate? Are we not going to irrigate? Are we going to fertilize? Are we going to what kind of what kind of uh, what kind of early on? What varieties are we going to plant? Where are we going to plant them? What's our planting destiny uh, density like? All of these decisions all end up manifest in that final beverage. And the people who make those decisions and know how to make that 99-point wine is what you're paying for. I mean, a, a lot of it is what you're paying for. And and then the, then then did they decide to do, you know, go through and do multiple tranche pickings while they were, you know, when the fruit was ripe, or did they run a machine down the row and, and pick everything? Um, all, all of that is, is what's important. But then, you know, the, the issue that we face right now in terms of cost is our scale. Because we're, we're, we're doing the things that we're trying to do with the orchard and with our mead making processes, and we're doing them at very small scale. And if you're a, a big commercial winery, if you're a gallo or a barefoot or, or, or um, yellowtail or one of these other places that, that's running their bottling line, uh, sometimes two or three, maybe even three shifts a day, the, the piece of equipment that they spend a lot of money on, they're using 100% of the time. And we're a tiny little winery, and we bought a nice wine uh, meadery, and we bought a really nice bottling line, and we use it twice a week if we're really cranking. And so, and, and that's for one shift. So, all of those scale issues, and the same thing is true with with the other aspects. I mean, you need an administrator to take all of take care of all of the the. the compliance activity you need you need someone to deal with your your human resource stuff you need an accountant you need all these things that 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 you know you, you um that, that drive cost up sure <laughs> um, sure um and and if you're not getting the same level of scale that a huge facility is a huge brewery or a huge winery is uh, you, you have to put that cost somewhere and it, it ends up in you know it ends up in your on our our, our price tag and people wonder, you know, why is it so expensive? And and a big part of that is number one, we're, we're tiny, we're just tiny. And then the second thing is, we are we are trying to help the mead industry learn about 
which currants you should use to make the best sure. black currant. Sure. Well, the fruit industry too. Right. I, I, oh, absolutely. I think a great example uh, of what you're talking about scale, you know, small versus large, and how that impacts varietal fruit uh, selection is with uh, cherries in Michigan. We have mostly Montmorency cherries, which after they ripe, they ripen almost all at the same time. It's a 400 year old variety. Um, it's like 98% of our cherries. Uh, but within a day or two of it ripening, it turns to mush. And so most of it, almost all Montmorency cherries have to go to a processor because these growers are just not set up to deal with this mush. And so most of it ends up being produced uh, into concentrates and powders and things like that. Um, and because because of that you know, natural history of this fruit, that's why most of the cherry stuff is concentrate because it, the fruit just will disintegrate. And so if you have a cherry beer, it's usually made with this red tart concentrate, which is Montmorency. But the good news is that we're starting to grow varieties here in Michigan and in other places which are that have better flavor for that brewers will want better flavor, better aroma. And they are varieties that can be picked by machine or by hand. And so you can have an entirely new set of products and quality levels depending on your customer. So this was a grant that I... Uh, I applied for, I think I was denied, but we, we do a lot of different, um, grant projects and stuff like that. But, um, one of the, one of the grants that I was working on, one of the projects I was working on was working to, uh, working with farmers that are growing these cherries to develop new ways of growing this fruit that are, you know, maybe more mechanized, but also respectful of the flavor and the aroma for different uses. So, Cherries in particular, you know, the, I think every brewer out there, if you're using red tart concentrate, just use Balaton cherries. Just try one like little pilot batch of some different variety and see what the differences are because it's it's night and day. It's like the fruit versus the, the sucker, you know? Yeah, yeah. We are getting on in time here. I want to talk about corks before we wrap this up because uh, – uh, you know, obviously, we've got corks sitting in front of us. Um, this is this is also something that those that make corked beer, uh, you know, uh, can engage with as a subject. Um, you know, talk to me about corks, James. Uh, and, you know, okay, <laughs> um, if, like I think this is really your your subject. I am a bit of a cork dork, and usually that means that you like wine and you study wine and you're a nerd for wine. I'm actually a cork dork in that I've. I've spent too much of my time trying to find really great corks and trying to understand what the cork is actually doing. Um, for us, you know, we are making it uh, in many respects a traditional wine, and our packaging is ancient technology, which is glass bottles and corks. Um, the benefit of the cork is that it will um, fill in those gaps in between. Um, that they may exist in glass bottle manufacture. So it's a really handy tool because you don't need really high precision manufacture of glass bottles. Um, but also um, it does these amazing things to well-made wines as they age. Um, and so it's a traditional closure. Um, we use it for a lot of reasons. It is in many respects a mark of quality, at least in terms of what the consumer thinks. You know, there's a lot of consumer psychology surrounding corks. The reality is that like 85%, I think maybe I'm making this statistic up on the spot, but 
most wine is consumed within 48 hours of purchase. So if you're putting a cork that's rated for 20, 30 years in your bottle, it's like, it's generally wasted. Um, but for that subset of customers that wants to age their mead or their wine or their beer or whatever, um, cork can be a really amazing choice. Um, it doesn't actually transmit oxygen like people think. Um, we used to talk about um, oxygen transmission rate through a natural cork. And it's true that there are various um, packaging methods that you can use where oxygen will actually enter the bottle from the exterior environment. But the latest research uh, from Paulo Lopez and others have indicated that oxygen's not actually going through a natural cork. It's coming from the the lenticels of the cork itself. So you can seal the bottle over with lacquer or epoxy and it will age the same as a bottle that is aged properly. The issue becomes... So most, you don't need to cap or wax it. That's what you're saying. Oh, the wax is doing nothing. Yeah. I, I love I love wax, um, especially on a beer bottle. Wax on top of a crown cap is so funny to me because it is doing nothing. <laughs> Home brewers and commercial brewers and uh, there are a lot of people that believe wax is actually sealing it but wax is highly permeable to oxygen it 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 re- it is a barrier and it is it repels water it's a barrier to opening your beer it's a barrier to yeah it's getting in the way uh, for wine it, it wax was the original capsule right but the reason why is kind of lost to history and it's one of those funny questions I like to ask people. It's like, why are we wa- putting wax on top of a cork? Like, what is the actual reason? And they're like, it's to keep it clean. It's to keep it presentable. And it's like, well, not really. Back in the day, in cellars in Europe, um, they had cork oak moths that would have their larvae go into the cork and just drill a hole in the cork. And you'd have wine on the floor. So you'd have oxygen entering the bottle. You'd have wine coming onto the floor. And the wax was used to protect a cork. And that's it. It's not sealing Just it. Just keep the bugs it's out. It's hiding it from the bugs. We don't have that issue, really. Most cellars that I've been in don't have moths. I think I've beaten my moth problem in my, my cellar. In any case, <laughs> um, the capsule is just a uh, facility. It's funny how these little foil uh, you know, wraps now do the same exact thing and yeah. to keep the moths out. Well, and most people aren't even using foil. I don't think we have any. Oh, we do have one here. This is a really, really nice capsule, um, but it's made from tin. You know, it's actually made from metal. Most people are using what's called polylam, which is a poly. It's a it's a composite lamination of plastic and a little bit of some sort of metal. This is a full piece of metal that's um, made from tin. And you could melt it down. And this is a traditional capsule material. But even a capsule is not a traditional thing. The wax was tradition, and the only reason it was tradition was to keep the moths away. Anyway, um, corks are great. They do have a lot of downsides, like it's a natural material that's highly variable, and moths will eat it or whatever. Um, But it is, in most respects for us, the best packaging decision for our style of wine that we're making. If you're making other styles of beer, you don't necessarily need to spend a dollar fifty on a cork. Most wineries are spending about ten cents or less on screw cap or a plastic cork or even a like an agglomerated cork. Or, you know, there are a lot of different. We could we could do a whole other podcast on cork, I think. But <laughs> uh, we have some different 
ideas about cork. Like yeah. I said, we spend about a dollar fifty per cork wow. on some of these, whereas most people are trying to get them for like ten cents. And the reason we're doing that is because these are going to provide you, if you want, with the ability to age this properly in your cellar for twenty or thirty years. And if you have a wine cooler, it could be it could be upright. If it's in your cellar, you should lay it down to keep the cork supple. Um, but pretty much it'll be a perfect little seal if your storage conditions are correct. It'll be 100% humidity inside the bottle, and it'll maintain a nice seal. The, the oxygen will come out of the cork at a controlled rate into your wine, and that's important. If you have a plastic cork or various other methods, you have to start thinking about oxygen transmission because the oxygen will come from the exterior environment into the bottle. And sometimes that can be very quick. If you have a bad seal on a crown cap, it's a matter of weeks before your wine will be vinegar, especially if you make it the way that we make it. So the cork is pretty important to us. Um, it is, it, it's a challenge. You know, it's, it's an imperfect material. Um, it, it can become contaminated with um, chloral anisols. So cork taint is, is something that a lot of people are familiar with, but some people still aren't. Uh, on our higher end of corks, I'm a huge proponent of the Endetech technology, the individually screening of corks for this TCA molecule. Um, they use an ultra-fast chromatography solution, which is like 10, 10 seconds per cork. It's not, you know, it's not something they're, they're rolling out for every single cork. Um, there's two companies that sell most wine corks, Amram and Portacork, and Amram owns Portacork. The Amram family, it's like, it's basically a monopoly. They have vertically integrated from the forest to this bag that's sitting in front of us. Um, but they've invented this technology, this Enditech technology, and they've they've made it available to Portacork as well. I'm a huge fan. There are other techniques for ensuring the quality of your cork, but for me, it's it's cheap insurance. You know, on a bag yeah. on a bag of a thousand, we may spend twelve fifty plus another hundred hundred fifty bucks on the screening process. If I can, so the extra 150 bucks, if we're putting this into a bottle of mead that we're selling for $180, if I avoid one tainted bottle, it's an easy decision for me. But it's not um, something that a lot of people are doing. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, I love, if, if you care about it, if you're going to lay it in your cellar for 20 years, you don't want to have any surprises. And that taint from the cork enters the wine within 48 hours. So whether you're going to open it right away or not, the wine the wine can become tainted if you if you're not making good decisions on packaging. Let's zoom out in the close here and talk about the big picture. What what do you hope to achieve? What is next for Shrams? And do you have this goal that you'd like to achieve through this business? Well, we we we've talked about it a, a lot here, and um, we've we've discussed the fact that we really need all the time to be thinking about kind of our one-year goals. You know, there's all these, all these, I mean, James, James and I are both, we, we, we both have a long list of things. We'd, we'd love to have that fruit elevator. We'd love to have a, a floor scrubber. We'd love to have a, you know, there's, there's, there's 12 machines that we would love to have. That's the kind of the one-year, five-year sure, plan. Sure. Um, but the orchard is more of a 50-year plan. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, I, I've said I've said a, a lot that you know we, we, 
in a world where Weinstefan is going to be a thousand years old, ho- hopefully in my lifetime, and where there are wineries that are more than a thousand years old, um, it, it's not it's not silly or inappropriate for us to be thinking about having a five hundred year plan. This is, you know, high quality alcohol. I don't think it's going anywhere. There's a lot of people out there that are harping on alcohol right now and talking about how bad it is for your health. Um, but but it, we've had an alcohol dehydrogenase gene in, in, in what became Homo sapiens for like 6 million years. So um, th- there's something about alcohol that we're attracted to that, w- that works with humans. And so I think the, the notion that we, we should look at you know, what, what this could be like 500 years out is, is not, you know, it's not ridiculous. And it's almost, it's almost more of a, of a thing that you kind of wonder why more people aren't doing it. If if you know, it's going to happen, you might want to plan for it. So that's, that's our, that's our approach is that we, we are, we are looking at, we are looking at what things can help make mead better we, we are 10 years in and we're probably one of the better meaderies in the country or, you know, you, who knows, maybe in the world. But, but we should be looking at if there are wineries that are a thousand years old, uh, how, how, do we, how do we take lessons from them and how do we build what we're doing as shrams into something that has the potential to last for a thousand years and, and hopefully keep uh, getting better and, and having the right impact on the world that we live in. A thousand years. That is the most amazing answer that I have ever gotten to that question and uh, some grand ambition, but also a beautiful way to try to guide the business in a way that makes long-term decisions rather than short-term decisions that, uh, that looks at this, you know, lineage and future more so than just uh, the short-term. And I think that that's reflected in the quality of everything you do. It's truly beautiful, and that's a great place to bring this to a close. G&D Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling and offers 24-7 service and support. Roar North Star Pills is a base malt you can set your compass by. AccuBrew gives brewers like you unprecedented insight into your fermentation process. ProBrew solutions are specifically designed to help you brew your beer. Old Orchard supplies flavored craft juice concentrate blends to beverage brands across the U.S. SS BrewTech has taken tech they invented working with industry vets and made them available to every craft brewer. Try Christian Hansen's Smart Bev range of frozen liquid yeast and freeze-dried bacteria and join the craft beer community in Sacramento March 19th through 22nd for the California Craft Beer Summit. Of course, we'd appreciate your uh, subscription to Craft Beer and Brewing. Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button. If you are a subscriber, you can uh, check out the article that James wrote uh, (laughs) for our, I guess it's it's, the pale ale issue that's out now. It's an amazing issue, by the way. I think it's understated in this podcast. There's been a redesign and it's gorgeous. Oh, thanks. It is awesome. I'm not just saying that. It looks awesome and there's some amazing articles in it as well i am also our graphic designer our director creative director and everything else Uh, i do i wear a lot of hats around uh our business as everyone in this small business world understands and does the same um so but but thank you for that i appreciate that Uh, we did try to refresh things as we move to this quarterly format um some great articles in that issue your subscription helps us keep bringing these great conversations uh to you and uh yeah go to beerandbring.com Click on that subscribe button, support what we do. Um, if people want to learn more about Shrams, where do they find you all? 
You can go to store.shramsme.com directly. You could go to shramsme.com. That's S-C-H-R-A-M-M-S-M-E-A-D.com. But if, if you just go directly to the store, we'll be able to get you mead much quicker, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we we do a lot of shipping. It's the majority of our business is um, direct-to-consumer shipping through the mail. So if you're in any number of states in the United States, uh, you can get our stuff directly sent to you. Uh, if you're listening in Europe, we've got an amazing selection of retailers across the EU that has our product. If you're in Japan, you can get our product. Uh, the UK has an amazing um, series of partners that are helping us get our product out as well. So, yeah, just ask for us at your local bottle shop or go to our website. Fantastic. Pick up a copy of the Complete Me Maker. <laughs> yeah, you get that too. <laughs> Ken's book, The Complete Mead Maker, for sure. Uh, must read for anyone aspiring to make their own mead. Well, James, Ken, thank you all for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Cheers. My pleasure. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.